What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. Almost out of quarantine, I, I'd say. We're, some places are close, some places uh, not so close. But Dave, been a couple weeks. How you doing? Doing well, man. We are uh, rejoicing for this great bounty of content <laughs> from the gods. The, the content miners hit a new pocket of rich culture to discuss partially because we didn't actually do anything new last week so that always helps but (laughs) we'll see how long this lasts as the production delays continue yet there's a lot of good stuff this week including things that are not new at all like hamilton yeah and that's probably a good place to start um hamilton dropped the hamil film dropped on disney plus Uh, a live recording of the original cast performing the Broadway sensation, which was really still at its like apex when we first started recording the show. So kind of crazy that we're talking about it three, four years after it has dropped four years. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think everybody who is, has been conscious in America is aware of Hamilton to some extent that it's the film by Lin-Manuel or film, the uh, play by Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, really propelled him to start him to start him the last couple of years, and um, you know I had never seen it. Listened to some of the soundtrack. I know that you had seen uh, it in Boston, I believe, with your mom, right? That's correct. I had the tremendous privilege of winning the lottery in September 2018 at one of the touring stops in Boston. Funny enough, I had applied for the lottery during the thick of the. Hamilton fever back in 2016 that summer I, I want to say I put in for it maybe like 80 times or something I don't know, basically every day that whole summer which was kind of hilarious in hindsight because I still lived in Albany at the time and I would have had to have you find out if you win the lottery at four o'clock you have to pick the tickets up by 7 p.m for the <laughs> 8 p.m show I believe is how it went so I would have had to immediately jump out of my desk chair leave work speed down the interstate, park my car somewhere in like Harlem, probably just like I'd find a spot, take the uh, train into Grand Central, then run over to Richard Rogers Theater to pick those tickets up in a three-hour window. It was a very unrealistic plan that never actually mattered in the end. But yeah, I won the lottery. And I will say one of the things that really stood out to me when seeing it live uh, was the energy in the theater before it began. Uh, there was just this kind of crackling anticipation from everyone there, which I think is notable because with something like Hamilton that's been so hard to see and, and so cost prohibitive to see as well, uh, that most people in any given show are seeing it for the first time, despite how famous this play, this musical is. And there's just such, such anticipation. And then meanwhile, once you watch this musical, almost everyone there knows the words because they've heard this soundtrack for sometimes years at that point right and yet there was just such enthusiasm and energy and you could feel that again in the intermission which is longer than a minute unlike the the film version of course um and you know watching uh watching this film version of the play obviously it's really cool to see the original cast of course whose voices everyone's familiar with from the, the album but um you know, seeing how, how that's different for me since I'd seen the film, but also seeing how film theater is different than uh, seeing theater live, of course. I think the audio mix is, is a lot different, you know, but mm-hmm. 
positive end, you get a more centralized camera angle. And I think from, from my limited experience with watching filmed stage plays, uh, there was a lot better camera work for this Hamilton film than there is for most other instances of this, you know, um, which, which was, was positive. I mean, what did you think? Because you had uh, not seen the, the musical. Yeah, you know, the anticipation for it um, was obviously high. Like you talked about that, that sensation really drew so much energy and buzz around it. It was the sort of thing where I felt like whenever I saw it, it probably could not live up to the hype it had been put to. But I was still incredibly impressed. And I've, I've been listening to the soundtrack pretty much every day ever since because I feel like not only is uh, this a very unique performance you know uh obviously they're doing hip-hop hip-hop like songs a lot of uh songs that uh, are in the same vein as things like a tribe called quest uh biggie smalls that sort of like classic hip-hop that lin-manuel miranda has um you know given a nod to in a lot of interview sense um but if they didn't do it in these styles uh if they sang in traditional um you know theater musical style it's supposedly would be like a four plus hour musical mm. so yeah, it's, a lot of it's, words. It's, it's yeah it's just a lot packed in um so i found it very engaging and i think more than anything i was just blown away by how much i liked the tertiary characters so much more than i liked the main characters like uh, leslie odom jr as burr is fantastic as the narrator kind of like the propelling uh force throughout the the storyteller throughout the play and lin-manuel is pretty good as hamilton i think he's a better uh, playwright and uh, you know musical writer than he is performer in any sense which I don't think is much of a hot take at this point especially when he goes up against someone like David Dix who <laughs> is just absolutely electric in this I mean he won the Tony Award for his performance up against Leslie Odom and uh, Chris Jackson um, yeah, it was Chris Jackson and Groff um, oh and Groff okay. Odom also won beating Lynn gotcha. and then uh, Renee Goldsberry Angelica Schuyler she won and then Philippa Sue actually lost to Cynthia Revo for her turn mm. in The Color Purple. But wow. yeah, that's three acting wins, plus uh, they won Best Musical as well. I think 11 Tonys in total back in 2016. Insane. And you actually just mentioned Groff, who I think has to be like the Dion Waiters Award of this play, uh, right? Yeah. He comes in, I think it's he sings written. for, yeah, he sings for a total of like six minutes and 30 seconds the whole time. And he just steals the moment every time he's absolutely electric playing this like king george who's like a sociopath and like this flat affect but like mm -hmm. you know obviously like supposed to be like childish and uh, spoiled but also like a uh, uh, ruling under a, a hard thumb it's very mm -hmm. engaging and uh, just kind of reminds you how talented this guy is because the last time most of us engaged him if you unless you saw uh, frozen 2 where he plays what you can skip um, that one Sven? What's, I don't even remember the No, no, no. He, he's um Kristoff. Kristoff, yeah. Um, but is Mindhunter where he plays Holden Ford. Of course. Um, love Mindhunter. Go check out that review. Um, who, when you when you watched the live uh, the original cast, live, the Hamill film, mm -hmm. who were you most taken by performance wise? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I remember when I, you know, I think listening to the 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 soundtrack and then seeing it myself, I was always really blown away with. The, the whole construction of the Burr character and how it affects yeah. the film. And I mean, Leslie Odom is just so great as well, but it was weird. He almost seemed more muted to me in the film mm -hmm. 
And I think that's just partially due to the mix, partially due to uh, not being in the room when you're watching it. But it's kind of interesting to have that, have him not jump out as much as he had in past uh, exposure to it. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think David, you know, it's funny because a lot, I think David's turn as Lafayette and Jefferson is one of the most popular for, for the play, obviously. Yeah, I, I don't know if Jefferson has like any real signature songs or even signature like moments of like great singing, you know? It's more this like David is just this very handsome guy, very talented guy who happens to be a rapper, of course, <laughs> that he just he just sells it in such a way. And and yeah. the way Jefferson is written as this kind of pompous, rich, rich trust fund kid, right? Like it's mm-hmm. done in such a way that he almost transcends his part. And it, it's tough not to really be taken with David's uh, performance. Yeah, it's interesting because he really, I think, has one of the strongest songs at uh, near the back half of the first act with Guns and Ships, where he comes in as Lafayette and just is spitting 100 miles a minute and super charismatic. And then he starts off as Jefferson to start act two mm-hmm. with What Did I Miss? Right. And it really just like amazing moments that just steal those parts of the show and you're just like wow that song really blew me away and a lot of these songs you have that that feeling afterwards but those ones i felt like really stuck with me um i I agree with you on burr which is interesting because i feel like uh leslie odom jr's voice when listening to just the soundtrack as i had before really stands out as one of the strongest Mm -hmm. to me in terms of like classically trained voices um singing wise but I felt like the only moment where I really felt like he was like projecting himself through other than Dear Theodosia, which is a very sentimental and moving mm-hmm. ballad, is um, the Adams administration. When he kind of like starts off and he comes across like so like angry and kind of like starting like the downfall of Hamilton there, so to speak. Was, that's one of the moments I like really associate. But other than that, I didn't feel like he had a huge standout moment too much. So I, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, it, it's in, in Wait For It's the signature burst song, but that's obviously so early in the play mm-hmm. um yeah actually, i think my favorite burr moment which is the case once again with the film but also the soundtrack is uh washington on your side in act yep. two which is not just burr um but you know it's funny like you mentioned uh what did i miss for jefferson's introduction and that's actually one of my favorite songs for what it, not not only for what it has to do with jefferson and all but so much about it's one of those great examples of like the recurring uh, motifs that mm-hmm. I think make Hamilton so infectious and easy to love. Um, you know, it's a, uh, Thomas Jefferson's coming home as opposed yeah. to anything later we have the George Washington's going home. You know, there's so many of these throughout the play, you know, uh, just you wait and talk mm-hmm. less, smile more and never be satisfied. Look around all these. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of my favorite moments. And, and that was another thing that I really enjoyed about the, the film again is having been very familiar w- with everything. It's just like catching more of like the genius that is Hamilton and, and Lynn, Lynn's specific genius and how he constructed the musical and having all these things kind of reoccur. And then you see how that mixes along with honestly very simple choreography and sparse set design that the words and, and then the songs are able to really transcend everything else around them because they're actually that good and that smart. And you know, I think being able to see the film is a good way to look at that set set design look at that choreography and see that it's not really that much going on yet it's also all you really need you know look at like when they do satisfied and the way they convey uh 
starts and stops in time and uh, rewind, right? And again, I would stay alive when Philip Hamilton's dying. And like yep. the way that they pause and they had the rotating thing in, in the stage, right? It's like, it's all really simple stuff, but I, I think it, it all really works and keeps you both focused on the words and what is being conveyed without uh, being too distracting. So yeah, I mean, it, it's yeah. uh, notably the, Ham- Ham- the Hamilton soundtrack uh, is number two in the country right now, 102,000 sales, which is its highest chart placement. Um, and it has been on the charts for 250 weeks. It has not yeah. left since October 2015. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just an absolute force of a, of a musical. You know, just, I, I want to bring up three more things. Uh, first, I really like how, this place subverted my expectations in terms of framing itself around these uh, founding fathers who are obviously incredibly famous in our country, um, constantly referred back to in current on our money. Yep. Um, And really I think the, the people that come across as the true heroes, like the the good people in this are Angelica and um, Eliza Sky or Eliza Schuyler. Um, Yep. They are the people who are, good moral the ones who are selfless doing things for each other and not for their own gain um and that's really highlighted i think in, in satisfied which I, I think is probably the song of the soundtrack in my opinion um and deli- delivered as so the best good. in my opinion but also who lives who dies who tells your story yeah um the end with um obviously uh philippa sue just absolutely crushing it i wanted to ask you wh- how do you interpret that last gasp um at the end by mm. Philippa Sue. There's been a lot of discussion online. Saw that. Yeah. I, I honestly, I haven't given it too much thought, but I noticed that it's been a uh, recurring bit of the discourse. It's interesting. I don't know if that was the case four years ago. I don't remember. Um, I mean, what, what do you think? I, I, one of the interesting theories I saw, and I think I, I buy into is that that gasp at the end is her, you know, reaching the afterlife, <clears throat> afterlife and seeing the, the play Hamilton, um, you know, being uh, that it's wow. being performed, and it, but it's showing that she was, it's being performed because she told the story and she was the one that did all this work to make this history known, really right. flesh out Hamilton's story in that way. And she's kind of seeing her life's work, work come to fruition, which is really interesting. I think especially because um, Lynn's clothing or his jacket changes, and that's supposed to symbolize that he's now Lin-Manuel Miranda and not Hamilton character mm-hmm. anymore. thought that was really interesting. There's a lot of interpretation though, so definitely check that out um online uh and i guess one other thing i think we should mention as we're kind of critiquing there's been a lot of critique about the portrayal of the founding fathers and founding father Mm. um ideology in the play and i wanted to just kind of hear your general thoughts about that we don't need to get too deep but especially in the the time we're in where do you stand with it no no i think that's actually been a very interesting thing to see play out because hamilton by the very nature of when it came into being is a product of the Obama era and espouses ideals in a certain way as a result. And you're seeing a lot of uh, comments on it now for, well, really it came, came out in 2015. Most people didn't become aware of it till 2016, but four plus years later, we're in a very different time. And there's been a lot of focus on the historicity of Hamilton And I've always find that so interesting because the educational value of Hamilton, I think is pretty paramount. You can ask teachers about that. And that's always been, you know, 
commented on right afterwards with the, the acknowledgement that Hamilton is not 100% accurate mm-hmm. and Hamilton is portraying flawed men. The founding fathers being flawed men is not by any stretch of the imagination a new idea or a new idea to the mainstream. Um, I have a bachelor's in history for those that don't know. And my capstone was literally about how the perception of the founding fathers has changed over time. Mm. This is very, very old ground. It's just been really funny to me to see all these people, see some people really kind of come for Hamilton's neck and come for Lynn as if the aspirational nature of, of the, of, of the, the play is somehow invalidating uh, to the whole prospect because um, Thomas Jefferson and Washington owned slaves and that is barely touched upon in the play. You know, mm-hmm. um, those, I guess those are flaws. Sure. It's tough to really reckon with the good, the flawed founders of our country did, you know, when you have those negatives as well, it is a challenging subject and I don't know how I could do it better, but um, it has been interesting to kind of see some of the lit- relitigation around that. Yeah. Know? No, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting. And it's funny because I think when you watch this, the only one out of the founding fathers that I feel like really comes across uh, almost like idealistic is George Washington. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think that's probably because you're, the story is being told from Hamilton's perspective and Hamilton owed a lot to George Washington in terms of his status and him climbing. Um, but I do think, you know, it's hard to, uh, talk about this period and Roger Ebert says this a lot better than I can in an interview I think from the 90s when he's talking about it's hard to portray that time period because if when the in these stories you look for people to be protagonists that you can get behind you can root for and if you really portray it accurately you wouldn't root for any of these guys you know they all were doing horrible things uh, especially in the story like Hamilton is probably one of the most innocent because he was only involved in the slave trading he didn't actually own but you know, he helped his family buy and sell. Um, and his, his wife advocated for freeing slaves afterwards. Hamilton was an advocate for it at the end of his life and obviously was not in favor of owning them himself. Um, but still, these are guys that did horrible things and they're, mm-hmm. they're flawed, a product of their time, but right. that doesn't absolve them. And, and even Hamilton, he's portrayed as a flawed character in the, the musical, obviously, yes. just not so much with the slave angle. And I think if there's anything people may grape with, I think it's probably Washington, as you said, because when Washington's going home, uh, one of my favorite songs, yeah. an amazing song, Christopher Jackson, you know, the shining moment for the role, um, mm-hmm. Washington doesn't free his slaves until after he dies, yep. or Martha does it for him, right? Like, so he's still going back to the slave plantation, Mount Vernon, right? Um, I don't know. That's, that's how it went back then, you know? But again, the value with Hamilton, I think just from educational value is like, this is a great way to examine the genius of the creation of our treasury under Hamilton. That is objectively a true thing, whether Hamilton sucked or not, you know? So it just depends how you grapple with these things. Um, But I find it very interesting to see uh, this kind of thing be, you know, uh, in the mainstream again. It's not a convo people have all that often about historical things. I think it really just happened because Hamilton just really so ubiquitous and has been capturing everyone's attention once again. Thanks to Disney. Well, we've talked about a uh, 2016, 2015 uh, play for 20 minutes. So maybe while we move on to some current pop culture, um, 
you know, check out Hamilton on Disney Plus. Why don't we talk about 100 Gex dropping 1,000 Gex in the Tree of Clues? What a title. Yeah, like a remix album with uh, some new songs added near the end, but obviously um, doing new versions with guests of their uh, album 1,000 Gex from last year, 2019. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the new songs because I think there's a couple of really cool remixes on here, but I wanted to also spend a little bit more time near the end. So I think the new songs are interesting to talk about and a little bit more topical. Um, all right. So let's start with, with the new, with the, the, the remixes, which, which of these remixes or new versions of these songs really hit for you or stood out? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hundred X made my top 10 albums last year as did their single Money Machine, which was remixed on this new album. Um, and I think the, the things that people like about 100 Gex and found refreshing and surprising and hard to comprehend at times about this duo is present once again with this remix album. And, you know, in terms of this really abrasive, hard to classify electronic pop music, right? Uh, and a remix album, you know, I, I don't know if we've ever even talked about a remix album before. It's usually not a proposition I, I care too much about. But 100 Gex, due to the nature of how they make music, kind of similar, I guess, to the way Tonight has made a little bit of music. Uh, you know, it's, you never really know what's going to happen. And then to get, you know, Injury Reserve and Fallout Boy and... Tommy Cash and who the fuck ever Charlie else. XCX. Of course, who, who has always kind of been in the comms in terms of the production. Mm-hmm. But like, you just kind of bring these voices in. And you're like, wow, what could 100 Gex do with that? You know? And I think Money Machine, probably one of my, I don't really care for this. I think the, 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 the original version is much better than this remix just because mm-hmm. we don't get like the, the do, do, you know, that's mm-hmm. so pounding in the original song. So I don't really care for this remix with A.G. Cook. But Ringtone, I think is yeah. a really interesting one because the ringtone song, Money Machine, Ringtone, and 745 Sticky are probably the more conventional, uh, traditional song structures on A Thousand Gex mm-hmm. and therefore probably most lending themselves most easily to a remix. But then you get two people that really like to uh, you know, bend boundaries a bit with Rico Nasty and especially Charlie XCX. Oh, I yeah. think that fits, that fits great. And it's actually better than the original ringtone. Totally agree. Um, that was, you know, like you said, Money Machine, uh, probably the song by them I enjoyed the most. But this remix of Ringtone really stood out. Obviously, Charlie is, you know, someone that she, she comes on and she immediately perks up. And same with Rico. So putting them on the track together, I, I want to hear more, more of them on tracks in the future. Um, I really also enjoyed for one of the, the new songs, it was uh, 800 dB Cloud. Yeah, the Rico Harbor remix. I thought that just was fucking excellent. <laughs> like, I just really was engaged in that song. That one's so interesting to me too, because the original version is just like traditional dubstep, which, in, in terms of any mainstream coverage, you do not hear a lot of dubstep these days. You know, that that's more like the bowels of Beatport right now. You know, um, so yeah, that that also stood out to me just because again, uh, very unlike just about anything else. Uh, I really like the 745 Sticky Remix with Injury Reserve. Kind of weird, right? To have have like real yeah. rapping with a Gex song, yet 
unlike when Richie just kind of comes in and it hits hard and it kind of transitions really to just them and like minimal production. But I like that a lot. And of course, uh, Grog's just passed away from injury reserve, so it's nice to hear him again. Um, yeah, man. And like the biggest surprise to me for sure had to be Fallout Boy. Um, <laughs> not so much their presence on this, but just that it was actually like really good. Yeah. And like it, it fit so well together. Yeah. I, I, I was, I mean, who was it? That's Pete Wentz singing, right? Yeah. Like that, that, I was really surprised that that sounded great. Yeah. Right? No, I, I forgot who sings Stump it. Who... is the singer. Oh, you're, you're right. Wentz is Stump the is the singer. Yeah. yeah. Wentz is the, the guitar heartthrob. But honestly, I, I, when I heard the track, I didn't see the Fall Out Boy was the one on it. So I like perked up and I was like, is this? And then I looked like Fall Out Boy? Like it. <laughs> Just a crazy uh, mix, but it worked out so well. Um, which of the new songs was was your favorite or that stood out to you? Yeah, Toothless. Yeah. Toothless hits. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about 100 Gex. They don't need everything to hit. Dylan Brady, Laura Less, this uh, eclectic duo. They don't need everything to hit. And I think by the nature of how they make music, not everything can. But when it does, it's just really fucking cool, man. So yeah. Toothless is, is one of those new ones for me. Yeah, Toothless was the one that definitely stood out to me too. Um, I also thought, just got pulling back up here, um, I also thought uh, Small Pipe was pretty good. Like, I, I just one of the ones I enjoyed probably the most. Um, I gotta be honest though, like, 51 minutes of Gex, uh, if, if you're not big into Gex, can be uh, a lot of, of Gex at once. It's so interesting too, because the original album, is 10 songs, 23 minutes. Yes. And I get this remix <laughs> album that's more than twice that in length. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. It's a lot. But um, yeah, I, I think check this out. Um, the remixes are cool, but the new stuff is definitely worth hearing. Uh, we added Toothless to our Nostalgia Best of 2020. So follow that on Spotify. Um, while we move on to a band that dropped an album a year before 1000 Gex, which is the best who dropped... Future Me Hates Me in 2018, one of my favorite albums of that year. Got a positive review from Dave, which is really good uh, for a rock album. Hard to get, so uh, I think that gives you a little bit of credence into how good that <laughs> album was. Dave, did you feel like the second album, Jump Rope Gazers, is living up to the the best the usual quality? No. Ah, why not? No. It, well, the first three songs are good. You know, it's <laughs> like the first album. And then we get the traditional tale as old as time with indie rock. Yeah. And they're not really that much indie rock. They're kind of like power pop. But anyway, it's that classic thing that happens with the second album where they don't know what to do. You know, that first album, Future Me Hates Me, fucking hits because they, are really, they have really tight hooks and they make really tight songs Guitar is good. The drums good. Uh, Elizabeth Stokes' vocals are really engaging. I think they're still engaging on the second album, but just like it's yeah. much moodier music a little bit, you know. And I was just really surprised to see them go in this direction because I just thought it was really fucking tight shit the first time around. So yeah, I um, I, I don't hate it or anything. I just was disappointed because I feel like it was kind of a weird. It turned down a different road a little bit towards the end of this track listing. Um, but a song like Dying to Believe, track two, that shit's fucking great. That sounds just like the first album. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because the, the first album 
was just pacing wise so on level and you think about the songs that were a little slower like a river run um that song more downbeat for them still has the same driving kind of like uh pace to it in terms of structure in terms of the way that the rhymes are coming and, and just the the song is written these are definitely a lot more like elizabeth stokes getting down to her feelings um and while she's i think she's an excellent songwriter and uh i definitely think her she's going to be delivering us songs that are meaningful and thought-provoking down the road i think she got a little bit too in her feelings here i think the the order of the songs almost felt a little bit just like off uh, for me, you know, it, we, we talked about the same critique a little bit with the Lady Gaga album mm-hmm. Chromatica uh, a couple weeks ago. But you go from those first three songs, and then Jump Rope Gazers, you know, it starts to get a little bit more like, eh, okay. And then you're really in your feelings. Do You Want Me Now is like, I'm pretty sure about her wanting her therapist, which is pretty interesting. Um, but then Didn't like, I? it, it kind of goes back up a little bit more. Uh, with like Mars, the God of War, but you are a beam of light and just shy of shore. I feel like are pretty like lackadaisical way to end the album, which is just so disappointing. Cause like you said, I, I've seen the best live that last album plays so well live. It's just energy after energy. And this just felt a lot more up and down. And I think they just really shine when they're bringing the heat fast and furious. It's so interesting too, because when they came out, mainstream wise in 2018 they're just this unknown band from new zealand with one ep to their name mm-hmm. and now they're delivering a sophomore album with the whole industry of indie rocks expectations now laid upon them you know yeah. um and it's, it's they're, they're not the first to make this mistake they won't be the last i think a lot of like foster the people kind of taking a weird turn with supermodel you know um I mean, even this year, talking about, um, I was going to say Cloud Nothings, but that's not who I was talking about. Uh, Will Toledo, you know, and. Oh, Car Seat, yeah. Car Seat Headrest. I mean, that first album, Teens of Denial, fucking banger after banger, and then hard to re- recapture that magic. Um, you know, it's tough. I, I think, especially when you think of indie rock and what really dominates the sphere, you know, we talked about Phoebe Bridgers, we talked about Mm -hmm. Soccer Mommy and where they really thrive is with really sharp lyrics. Uh, Soccer Mommy, you know, brings in, I think a little bit more energy and and beat to her music than Phoebe Mm -hmm. does. Melody. Um, Yeah. But those are, uh, those are like the top of it right now. And and this could have been the best chance to really capture that, that scene. But I felt like they felt, they felt a little bit more into that style rather than, continue to carve out their own lanes right at at the end of the day there's no whatever there's no happy unhappy on jump rope gazers well uh, it just songs you did like uh dying to believe the second song felt really good it's really those first three songs in general i thought sounded good i was like really engaged with the album and then i as we've said started to lose me as we slowed down a bit yeah i really liked mars the god of war in the second half of the album too um i felt like that guitar solo at the end i want to hear more of that in the best because uh, i felt like like their other songs on the first album were just so tight they didn't allow themselves to like expound at all or have those moments so i'd like to hear them get a little bit more back to that first album sound with a little bit more of that like solo letting them go a little wild as well so disappointing but i think we're still going to put um one or two songs on to our playlist 
let's get to some albums that I don't think disappointed too much. And we'll start with Juice World. Talking about young people uh, who are coming up into the scene, starting to dominate the scene. We've talked a lot about Juice World. I feel like for someone that was only 21 when they passed away in December of last year of an overdose, um, we talked about that in the pod when it happened. Dropping this posthumous album, Legends Never Die. Uh, One week's notice. Came out of nowhere, really. You know, I thought this was for a posthumous album, which, you know, we always got to kind of like curb our critique with that, you know, that this is not the artist putting their fingerprint over. It's finished without them being all over it. I thought this was as good of a posthumous album gets. Um, I thought Mm. Juice kind of shone through. Um, I thought there was a lot to really take away and like. Obviously, there's a little bit of fat on it at times. And I think some things that were like unnecessary features, so to speak. But overall, pretty solid. And I think you kind of see what what made Juice this up-and-coming star is that he really, I think, in terms of his sphere, like being that sing-songy rap, did it really well. How did you feel about this album, though? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I definitely felt like there was a lot of filler on here. And Ledger's Never Die never really changed my thoughts about Juice World's music because I don't think there's anything new on this and posthumous album. That's generally the expectation. I just had a bit of a different experience with pop smoke the week before we'll get to that. But for juice, I just felt like, yeah, this is juice doing what he does, right? This is that, ang- that teen angst, that uh, incredibly candid examination of one's mental health and desire to self-medicate to uh, combat inner demons, right? That's still here. That's why Juice was so big and so famous, yep. right? And I think where this album really shines is that, by the grace of God, there's actually some Juice lyrics that are able to really grapple with that directly in terms of like when he literally says, I know my lyrics saved you, right? And then you have that outro at the end where he's talking to his fans, right? And it's yeah. like kind of wild that he actually had these moments to capture and share with his fans, right? Yep. Um, but... I don't think I was really like wowed by any, any song per se, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't think there's much here that you really hold up to like death race for love or oh, no. uh, goodbye and good riddance, you know, but you know, songs like, like stay high, that's juice at his uh, trappy, trappiest flows, you know, and mm-hmm. there's actually some interesting use of like drum production on this, which kind of gets to that more emo side of juice that he mm-hmm. kind of dabbled with, uh, sonically even if he always really gave rap flows on his songs so you know it, it's a uh, it's interesting I, I don't think i'm really gonna go back to it whole, all that much but i think for his hardcore fans that are really really taken with his death uh i think there are really some some moments that you know that you're gonna uh, shed a tear to and really you know resonate with and reflect on that short but memorable ride that being a juice world fan was yeah you know i I think in terms of a posthumous album, like you said, you want to feel like you get the artist's energy, that that spirit through. And I think that happens on a decent amount of moments. Now, are they are those moments like top tier Juice World moments? Probably not. Um, but I think like the first song, Anxiety, I thought Bad Energy, Wishing Well. I thought these were moments where it really felt like you were getting that, that Juice World uh, spirit through 
his songs. And like you said, to have these, these kind of lyrics, these moments recorded to, to play and speak so directly to the, his themes that he's talked about, things that he went through, mm-hmm. um, things that probably ultimately played in, a part into his untimely passing. It's kind of just like insane that, that this was kind of be able to put together and be as coherent as I think it right. was. Um, yeah. And we're going to talk about pop in a second. I think pop's album is way better. Um, but I still thought for this being posthumous, pretty impressive. Um, yeah. 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 Um, now I was thinking, I think one of the, one of the moments that kind of stood out to me, just kind of superfluous moment, but on stay high, uh, is that I thought a really good quotable. I got that drip like gonna, I might drip or drown myself. I was like, Ooh, juice with the bars. I like that. Um, now I think we have on this album, uh, a, a common sin with posthumous albums that would be come and go with marshmallow. That is a very interesting song to me for what it might've maybe could have been if juice was still here. Right. That starts with like some solid drum kit work. Right. And it's like juice is kind of riding this and it's kind of a different, different uh, production for him. And I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. And I started getting these vibes like, Hmm, is this going to be like Halsey's 3am or it's like this really throwback pop rock song. Hmm. And Halsey's on this album. That's probably why I thought of it. Mm-hmm. But then his lyrics start getting uh, really distorted and marshmallows drops come in a little heavier. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, you ruined it. And I wonder, maybe that they made this song the way they did because this is all they had. This was probably yeah. a snippet or something. And like they, had, they had to clean up the lyrics somehow and that's uh, the vocals somehow and that's how they did it. That's kind of my guess. But I was like, ah, man, that, that's like kind of like, like the, the potential for more that Juice left us with. I'm like, mm, maybe that was it. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And uh, if there's one man you want to put uh, the hands of a posthumous album, it is definitely Marshmello. So He's literally on here twice. Yeah, not great. Um, all right. Any last thoughts before we wrap this one up and move on to pop? Uh, shout out my guy, Polo G. Obviously, a Chicagoan like Juice. Cool to see them that they've never been on a song before. Um, yeah. But again, that's a very weird song. That's also a marshmallow song. It's like you just kind of copy and paste of this polo verse. And because polo G has a high floor, it sounds good. But again, kind of kind of weird one. But uh, I also I, I was actually surprised. I like that interlude song. What was it? The Man, the Myth, the Legend, where you got mm-hmm. like was it Cole and Lil Dicky and people just kind of talking about their their appreciation for Juice's technical ability as a freestyler. I'm like, wow, that, yeah. that, that, that's actually a really cool idea to like uh, use interviews and stuff like like that as an interlude. I like that. So. This is a, interestingly, this album is currently at time recording projected to do 400 to 440,000 first week sales, which depending on how high that does, it could beat the weekend for the biggest week of the year. The weekend did 440, uh, 444 and it's going to beat Uzi for biggest streaming week of the year. Kind of wild. And again, this came out with really no notice, only one single and righteous. It just shows you just how popular Juice World is. And uh, this is an unfortunate transition into the next artist we're talking about, but uh, another artist that passed away way too soon, um, only a couple of months after Juice World in February, uh, Pop Smoke. Even younger than Juice World. Yeah, 20 years old. Um, He was shot in a home invasion. Actually, just I think this past week, five people were arrested in connection with this so that I'm, I'm glad that there's yep. hopefully some justice being brought 
for uh, Pop Smoke. Uh, we've, we've talked about him a lot because we've been talking about Drill a lot, and mm-hmm. he was just that leader of that that Brooklyn Drill scene that's you know really taking the, the zeitgeist right now in New York rap. And um, yeah, I think this album, which is executive produced by 50 Cent, who was basically Pop's mentor in, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, or was becoming his mentor, um, I think this album really shows what made pop great and it's interesting because i feel like at times he's able to really become melodic and really like craft just a really like nice song like he i think there's like one love song near the back that i want to mention a little bit that really hits but then there's also moments where he sounds like rick ross on the shit and it just goes hard and like the way he uses his voice to like go in between is just so impressive how did you feel listening to shoot for the stars aim for the moon yeah, man, this album made me fucking really sad because it's just so fucking obvious what was lost with Pop Smoke, right? As you said, we've talked about Brooklyn Drill. Pop was not the first star of the scene. 2-2-Gs and Chef G came out before him and made noise before him. But Pop Smoke, due to that just undeniable charisma and presence on the mic, just immediately took it by storm. And as I said, as everyone said when he died, it was just clear that he was a superstar because he's going to transcend being a local legend and bringing Brooklyn to the world. And you kind of already started to see that happening, right? Because on the Jack Boys EP, you have Gotti, where Travis Scott brings pop on a Axel beat to make a fucking Brooklyn song and have Travis do his shit on it afterwards right it's like you could see it happening you could see it coming and i think the comp to him is truly 50 cent i thought that i think everyone thought that before he died and it's even more obvious now after some of the new songs we get on this posthumous record um and it's just fucking fucking sucks because it just feels like a real loss. Um, and it's weird. Now, as a posthumous album, this is actually quite different than Juice World because there's a lot of features on it. There are 14 features on this mm-hmm. album, and most of them are not New Yorkers, right? And it's interesting. It's like, that's clearly was done because they didn't have enough for those songs, those verses, to make it so they threw on, you know, features. And it's an A-list mainstream list of features, right? Huevo, Roddy, Future fucking Tyga, baby, Lil Baby, right? It's Sway Lee. It's a who's who, more or less. But that, to me, was really disappointing because you're kind of drowning out Pop Smoke on his own album at times. Yeah. But there are some fucking really shining moments that you see on this, and you can tell that he had a lot more to give and a lot more ground to lay as a rapper. And that's why I'm just, I'm just so bummed about it because you can fucking see it. He had these unreleased songs that weren't even done. And you're like, fuck, he's going to flip to me as into you, yeah. you know, like he's fab. Oh, he's literally going to, he's literally going to sample many men by 50. Cause he's literally the next 50 cent. Like he did it all. You have a fucking reggaeton song with Carol G and it sounds great. Yep. Like there's so much good shit on here. Um, gangsters, gangsters is literally just a 50 cent song. Mm-hmm. It's fucking awesome. You know, so uh, it, it, there's a lot. I've been listening to it a lot, despite the fact that there's also a lot of fucking fat on it. Yeah, you already alluded to something special, which I think it just 
what a moment, like you said, to uh, flip into you and, and kind of ride on that. And then I, I just feel like, I mean, not every song hits. There's a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of features and some of them hit, some of them don't. I actually thought Snitching with Quavo and Future was a fairly like strong song for Future, uh, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, <laughs> and I felt like Quavo also had a decent performance, which is, you know, not, something I say about Quavo a lot recently, unfortunately. Um, but I felt like uh, 44 Bulldog was a really strong song. Yeah. Um, really displaying, I think, what what made pop so great. Yeah, that's um, classic Brooklyn drill right there. It was, yes. it was great to hear one of those because a lot of these other beats are not drill beats. Yeah. Um, I also really liked the, the back half of the album a lot. You know, you get something special. Um, what you know about love is like, mm. how does Pop Smoke make a, a love song? Sampling uh, genuine's yes differences, <laughs> just <It's> awesome. <laughs> yeah, and and then to the fifty cent comps, you think of something like twenty one questions. Yeah, you know, yep. it's right there. And then you mentioned uh, the the King Combs, obviously. Uh, yeah, what, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Why is he here? Yeah, we uh, just talked about a King Combs feature. What the fuck, man? I'm sure he's as Alphonse <laughs> Pierre and Pitchfork said. I'm sure he's a great time, and he pays for dinner. But like, come on! <laughs> of all the features, I mean, geez, you couldn't have given Five Year Foreign a fucking right. look. Yeah, another little TJ, someone he's at least worked with. Come on! Yeah. I mean, we we definitely needed to get um, Tyga and Quavo on here twice. Oh, I mean, if geez. we didn't, if we did, <laughs> if we didn't, how could we even drop this album? And you know what's so <laughs> funny about that? I actually think Tyga sounds fine for like the what you know. Uh, Hancho on my West Coast shit, as Quavo puts it, right? It's like, it sounds fine, but it's like, this is a fucking Tyga song. I didn't need to hear this on the Pop Smoke album. Tyga, you get to save this. You know, it's, it's, ah, that, yeah. that, that one's tough for me. That one's tough for me. But, <laughs> but, you know, Quavo being on here three times, well, you know, they made Shake the Room together when Pop was still alive. That's a, one of his hits, you know? Yeah. So I get it. They actually worked together, but it's like, you know, you gotta, I think you gotta think about it a little bit deeper. That's all. Uh any um, any songs other than the ones we mentioned that you really liked or that you've been playing back a lot? It's it, I think it's quite notable that Dior is on here at the end. Yeah. Dior was also on both of his mixtapes. That's three for three. Um, get, it, get it back on the Billboard Top 100. And it's funny because you can read about this. Dior became a bit of a rallying cry of Black Lives Matter protests in New York. People, uh, protesters were just singing it a cappella out loud together uh, as they were marching. Mm-hmm. And... I think that that's kind of interesting, but that and that's kind of like the the song of right now for Pop Smoke, which is funny because again, it's it's kind of old. It's like his second second big hit. Um, <laughs> so you know, if there's another posthumous album, make sure Dior's on there as well. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Just keep uh, dropping it. Yeah. Well, I think we also because it's related, we should talk about the uh, there's probably a deluxe album coming for this. We know of some other songs. One of them that may or not be on there, may or may not be on there would be Paranoia with Gunna Young Thug and Pusha T. And we have that Pusha T verse where some strays are being thrown at Drake's ways. And by strays, I mean they were aimed at Drake. That's a very clear diss. Um, I think I actually brought up a very interesting conversation about rap, right? You have people talking about the timeliness of it, but also the presence of personal beef on a posthumous record. I think it's kind of an interesting thing. Hmm. I mean... Do you feel like like that's appropriate to be bringing your yeah. own beef to an album about some you know honoring someone that died? Right, and that's what's 
that's what's been kind of weird to me about it because the other person that put this album together with 50 Cent would be Steven Victor, who is the man, the manager of Pop Smoke and also the manager of Pusha T. So I wonder if there's a bit of a conflict of interest with that. But yeah, like Pusha doesn't do a lot of features, right? So he kind of like responds when he pleases, right? Like he didn't respond to Drake or talk about Drake until, you know, Infrared when he finally made Daytona, right? Like Pusha's been fine to take his time. I have no problem with taking his time. There's no statute of limitations with this shit. Yeah. But yeah, I think Thug might have been a little bit right in terms of like, eh, can we just do this? Like just put out a single, man. All the all your fans will hear it still. You don't have to ride this for any reason. So I don't know. It, it felt like interesting timing. Then again, it did leak a few days before it blew up. It didn't seem like anyone cared cared about it in a negative way until Drake decided allegedly to make sure it didn't get didn't come out officially. So it's like I don't know. I actually don't know how controversial it might have actually been had the Drake part of it not happened. I don't know. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's the sort of thing where uh, on the one hand, I, I can understand the the perspective of you know you don't want to bring your own personal beef onto the record for this person honoring this person that died. On the other hand, I think if uh, if it did drop and it was taking shots at Drake, it's gonna get a lot more looks than it probably normally would. And if anything, that's gonna uh, bring more people to listen to other pop smoke songs. And maybe that's actually the best way to honor, you know, mm. in a sense, it, beef always drives clicks and views unless it's corny as hell. And uh, Pusha and Drake, I don't think that that's played out yet. No, which is good. Which yeah. is good. I'm happy yeah. for that. Something um, to talk about. And you know, pop smoke, this album, I think it's did 251,000 first week, the sixth best album week of 2020, soon seventh after juice. And was at the time, only the, th- the third biggest uh, hip-hop album behind Eminem and Uzi. And now fourth, The Juice. But kind of wild to see all that attention for him after he died. Right? I don't think he did pass like 50 for Meet the Woo 2. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, you know who had a nice comment about this? Gotta give him credit. Fucking Takashi 69 was like, why wasn't he doing 250 when he was alive? Why are you doing this when he's dead? You know, I'm like, you know what, 69? You're right. You're right. <laughs> a lot of people were not paying attention. Anyone who knew, knew Pop was fucking fire. You know, a lot more people didn't know until he died, unfortunately. Uh, well, why don't we move on to some, some movies now, Dave? We have uh, two pretty good movies to talk about today, starting with The Old Guard. Uh, pretty good. The Gina Prince Bythewood mm. new movie. This is known for... Basketball 2 with Charlize. Yep. And uh, <laughs> uh, Secret Life of Bees 2. Um, Charlie's the the old guard of the secret mm. life. Uh, yeah, this this is interesting, right? So, um, I mean, going into this movie, what what was I really aware of? That there was an action movie with Charlie's Theron. I wasn't really aware of like mm-hmm. superhero undertones Same. to this. Wasn't really aware of uh, any of the the themes to this. I knew Kiki Lane was in it. And I was yeah, like, oh, liked her in Beale Street. Probably gonna like her in this. Let's let's check it out. And I left. Being like, you know, for a Netflix movie, and I'm kind of like couching it with that pretty good action movie, you know, and an entertaining plot. Uh, yeah. You know, so I was left satisfied, which for a Netflix movie, other than like The Five Bloods, we don't get that often. So I'll Rare. Take, yeah. <laughs> um, how did you feel about uh, The Old Guard? Yeah, man, it's been really interesting. There was a lot of discourse this weekend about if people are naturally qualifying and lending more rope to films because they are straight to streaming 
And also that's amplified because of quarantine and the lack of other options in theaters, right? Right. And I think a lot of people, and we do it too, we do levy expectations according to the way we're watching it. And Netflix mm-hmm. films have a reputation of net being not consistent in quality and usually on the cheaper end, unless it's something obviously made by an auteur like we just got with Spike or last year with Bombac and, you know, Quaron and all that and uh, Scorsese. So like, it depends, right? But for the old guard, you know, I, I think the plot, I like the plot as well, but the plot is not like anything out of this world. I think it's actually no. one of the weaker elements because it's just kind of predictable and, down the middle but i think the way that way the film is uh, made and you know it's an adaptation of a relatively new comic uh there's like just human moments in the in the way this movie is the story is told and when you have that around you know kind of supernatural powers superheroes if you will it seems to go a long way because we don't get a lot of that in the big budget superhero movies we uh, all, all go and see when they come out you know no and I think that that's what, that's what kind of stood out to me. It's like it, it felt like felt more lived in than a lot of the other superhero movies. And you know, again, that's despite the fact that we have a plot that's familiar. We literally have these characters all familiar. They're, they all they are all fucking Wolverine. That's their power, right? right. They can't be killed, uh, mm-hmm. right? Or or they don't stay dead. I think is the better way to put it, right? <laughs> it's like that's we we get it. There's nothing new there. But everything living dies. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I was I, I liked it. I, yeah, I was surprised. You know, I agree. The plot isn't mind blowing. Pretty, uh, especially for like an origin story type thing. Which I don't know if you can. I guess you can qualify this as like the Kiki Lane Niles character yeah. origin story. Not mm-hmm. really the rest of them. And maybe that's an interesting thing. We'll get like a spin off show about them or something like that. You know, who knows they set it up for a sequel too, for sure. Um, but I thought the sci fi elements and, and the superhero elements were. pretty engaging when it first kind of like when you when you find out that these people are thousands of years old i thought they were really like fucking with her uh the niles character and then like when you find out that they're serious like i had a big eye roll at first and then i was like actually you know i kind of kind of dig this like i kind of like that they come from different eras they talk about like loneliness and like the the Mm. burden of of doing these things and they also you know i think really flesh out in the chiwetel edge of four character really does a good job of doing this really flesh out the them as well-rounded characters that they do a lot of good and also some really awful things that kiki lane's character was mm. kind of opposed to and, and kill a lot of the conflict yes kill a lot of people and, and sometimes you know people that maybe don't deserve to die um but in the end the action is really good charlie's theron mm. i think this solidifies her as just the most bankable action star yeah. in the world in the last three years which is just insane like her and cruise i'd say yeah i mean if, if you had told me like 10 years ago Charlize Theron was going to be an action star like the most bankable one in the world i would have laughed at you she was well, just a really beautiful woman. it was a shit bet back then because aeon flux failed yeah you know and she True. got a second chance with mad max and then atomic blonde followed that yeah um I did like the action. I thought the choreography was actually pretty cool. Towards the end, you have that one where it kind of focuses on them reloading their guns and getting more ammo off the guys they killed and passing mags to each other. And it's like, again, kind of simple, but a lot of action movies don't actually show that shit. You're just supposed to assume that they got more ammo and they don't have an infinite mag, right? 
So mm-hmm. again, I kind of like, li- like that sensibility. Um, and, and the powers, you know, I, I like that. Like they're not like overwhelming characters, right? It's like what happens to Theron and uh, her, the first immortal she meets is she gets fucking dropped in the ocean because she's a witch and she actually couldn't beat that circumstance for a very long time until the, the end of the movie. Um, <laughs> and it's like, oh, wow, that's actually really compelling that like, you have this like all these great gifts, but you're still kind of hamstrung by the technology and knowledge of the rest of the world. Right. On the other hand, once we learn about this and we know that uh, the other one guy, the, the two guys are from the Crusades and the other guys <laughs> died with Napoleon. And it's like, huh, really cool. I wish we had an X-Men Origins Wolverine montage where we see them in the past doing shit. Like when we see Logan and Sabretooth fighting in all the American wars. I was like, oh, that's a really cool touch, you know? And like, yeah. we get just a taste of it, right? When uh, the like Charlie's character, like, wait, you know Rodin? What? And it's like, wait, I want to know who else you fucking know. I don't want Chichu right. Edgefor to show me on a board all the cool shit you do. I want to see you influencing history. That's yeah. not a new thing, but it's fucking cool, you know? <laughs> So I hope there's a lot more flashbacks like that in the sequel. And um, when I watched this on Saturday, it was the number one on the Netflix top 10. So I hope it's getting enough views to warrant just said sequel. Yeah. You know, there's, I think a lot to just kind of like dig into about aspects of the movie. Cause I don't think this is a perfect movie in any sense. We've already kind of mentioned some of the, the critiques. One I have is the soundtrack uh, beyond maybe like three songs, you know, you get a Frank song, I think you get Godspeed, you get an L King song, but then you get just like this generic EDM over almost every single fight scene. And I was kind of like, man, I, I wish that they had just gone with like a regular uh, score for this almost, uh, or yeah. even just like let the sound just like play for itself. Cause the action was so badass. but sometimes when you have like a huge marshmallow drop just coming over, I'm just like, okay, it's taking me out a bit. Um, but you know, I think, I think there's a lot more good with this than bad. And this is definitely a win for Netflix for sure. Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, did you recognize the actor who plays the villain? The very, very familiar archetypal bad CEO. Harry Melling. No, I didn't recognize him. Matt Smith looking ass. That is the same guy who played Dudley Dursley in Harry Potter. (laughs) Wow. Uh, really thinned out. Good, good yeah. for him. <laughs> I mean, when I think of Dudley, I just think of the uh, you yeah. know, the, the chubby one, I guess. Eating all the really, cake in the corner. Yep, really phased out of the the later movies. Um, yeah, interesting. You know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Palm Springs in a second. There's a, a that actor that I wanted to see if you could recognize too. But um, yeah, any last thoughts on Olgar before we move on? Iki Lane. Yeah, she's real good. Let's to rising. see what's next. You know, she's a bit of a late bloomer as far as uh, young actors go, but she's already 28 and really only two big roles between this and Beale Street. But, you know, she, she's a really talented performer. And I think she really helps ground some of those more human moments in the story because of her talent as an actress, like Charlize. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, it, it, that kind of talent just naturally elevates material. So looking forward to what's next for her. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of real good, Andy Samberg, uh, in my opinion, has become one of the most bankable comedy actors out there. And that's never more evident than Palm Springs, uh, which premiered at the uh, Sundance Film Festival last year. 
in 2019. Got a lot of buzz. Wait, Hulu, was it this year? Oh, was uh, this year? Was it this year? No, it was it, this year. Yeah. Ah, sold for a lot. Twenty Sundance. Seventeen point five million, the most uh, subscription service or anyone's ever paid for a movie straight out of Sundance, and uh, only by like sixty nine cents, which is pretty funny that it mm-hmm. beat the record for that much. Probably intentional. Uh, the debut from definitely intentional. <laughs> yes, from uh, Max Barkacow, um, you know, starring obviously Andy Samberg and uh, Kristen Milioti. Um, really like a Groundhog Day type sci-fi uh, romantic comedy. Um, right. Repeating the same day over and over again. Groundhog Day, Russian Doll, Edge of Tomorrow. Not a new premise, but I think yes. a, uh, a good premise still when done well like this. You know, I went into this movie similar to Old Guard pretty blind. You know, I, I think I knew, I knew Andy Samberg was in it. I recognized uh, Kristen Milioti as uh, Fargo well Fargo but more so to me she's always the the mother from how I met your mother um which is definitely not something that you want to be known as because that character gets like shit on a lot <laughs> just that, that that show ending gets shit on a lot um this movie was just a delight uh maybe you know top three top two favorite movie for me for this year just wow. found it really wow. really really wonderful laugh out loud moments really thoughtful meaningful moments and it's amazing that andy sandberg originally wrote this in film school and it wasn't what it is now it developed and has come a long way but you think this is probably like a 10 maybe 15 year old script at this point that finally got made uh pretty impressive how did you feel about palm springs yes i did like it a lot i think it has a lot of refreshing moments regarding the not new premise of the Groundhog Day, right? Yep. And, and, and that, that's cool. I think w- what I like the most about it is they kind of split up kind of the, the archetypes that we have with the Groundhog Day, right? You know, it's like Andy Sandberg is like Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow. She knows the deal. She's experienced. She can tell you what's going on. And Chris Emiliotti's more like the Tom Cruise. Like, well, I just got yeah. thrown in this, right? But you also have we kind of skip the experiences for the first time because you already have the veteran character, right? It's, it's kind of evolved mm-hmm. past what happens with Bill Murray. And you get to see Milioti go through the ringer with it and lose her mind and then accept it and do all the fun, crazy shit, right? And I kind of liked how they kind of flipped around some of the familiar character archetypes we associate with the Groundhog Day premise. And... Mm-hmm. When you have two really likable leads, you have a really kind of, I think a really enjoyable setting for the Groundhog Day, right? I think a Russian doll, it always starts with that party, yes. that house party, and it's like such a New York vibe. Mm-hmm. But this, you're at this wedding, a um, destination wedding, and you have all these other characters around you, and it's like, oh, I really like this. I'm really down to see this repeat a lot. Yeah, It has all the things you want with a Groundhog Day press. And you don't really need to know how the fucking cave works. You know, it's like, okay, cool. She learns of quantum physics at the end. They got, they fixed it. Whatever. I, I like watching this and I like watching JK Simmons fucking pull up with the archery a little bit. It's like, it's, like, it, it's so easy. I thought to I smelled you. <laughs> so easy to comprehend, but it, it still kind of feels really fresh. Yeah. And it's also hilarious. You know, it's like, well, I'm not a Puritan. 
<laughs> Good shit. Yeah, you know, um, the thing with Groundhog Day, and I actually watched Groundhog Day this year. It's um, on Netflix. I, to me, it's a really good movie. Um, I think when it's best is when it's Bill Murray just like trying things, doing ridiculous things. I think when it's, it gets really dark is when it's kind of lags for me a little bit. Um, and I think the thing about this movie is it kind of already gets past like the darkest part where Andy Sandberg. Uh, try yeah. to kill himself thousands of times basically yeah. you know and uh christina uh kristen miliotti kind of goes through that but sandberg as like the guiding is like you know it's not going to happen and when you do see her try to do like the things that will get her killed um it's it's always just done quick and funny and he, andy sandberg's yeah. like oh just bracing for a, a take quick off death. the seatbelt yeah it's done in like a light-hearted way so you're never really sitting with like the heavy feelings and then you they, they just had great chemistry. Like you really buy into their relationship. You buy into Sandberg as this like lazy shitbag, basically who's like kind of a uh, nobody seems like just kind of like over life. And, you know, after living the same day, however many times uh, probably makes sense. Mm-hmm. Then you have Kristen Miliati as this kind of like fuck up, you know, black sheep daughter um, yep. whose family just kind of expects her to always be, uh, doing the wrong thing and in a sense the day starts with her reliving probably one of the most shameful moments of her life over and over um, and seeing how they kind of come together and find this like ability to like move forward together you know it kind of is a comment on when you feel really stuck in your life having the right people around you whether that's a partner or a friend or someone that can you know kind of help you through that is really uh, really important and, and meaningful mm-hmm. But man, so many moments of this, I just found laugh out loud funny. You know, like we, we already kind of mentioned two of them. J.K. Simmons comes in, has a great like bit part. Um, I thought like when they were kind of like testing out some of the deaths was pretty funny. Um, I, I love the dance scene where they go into that bar yeah. and they just are like ridiculously dancing. I don't remember what song it was, but that scene has been going all over Twitter. It's absolutely hilarious. I watch it every time I see it. Um, yeah, I just... I like how uh, Niles has to be like uh, Misty's boyfriend. Like yeah. no one has any idea who the fuck he is at the wedding. <laughs> yeah, every single time. I also like how he just like shows up in the in her room and, with, with like the parents and is like, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like talk about things. Also, when he's going over like all the people he hooked up with and he mentions her dad and it shows him like Peter Gallagher. Like, yeah. what are we doing? Like, it's just like <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah. I mean, that's always that's always the cool shit too. It's like I like when like you you get the fantasy right. It's like, oh yeah, I had sex with everyone. Everyone, <laughs> yeah. that's right. And then he also is like, oh, I tried everything. You know, I, one time I did all this crystal and got all the way to equatorial Guinea, and then <laughs> the doctors wouldn't let me sleep. They kept me alive, and that was not good. And it's like it's like all these different ways of thinking about it. And I think it often brings other people. It's like, hmm, how would I handle? Yeah, never being able to escape one day. And it's like I feel like most people would just divert. Uh, devolve to just kind of doing some kind of grand theft auto action oh, right yeah. you're gonna kill a lot of people you're gonna fuck a lot of people some mm-hmm. combination you know yeah for sure and um i also like how they kind of laid out the rules of this right that like even though um even though the day is going to restart the people in that moment still experience pain so like when she like hits yeah, jk simmons with the car yeah the ethics of it is uh really like i think expounded upon like a really interesting way and then i also think it's kind of cool that like when they when they move apart and the reasons they do i think it makes sense but i also think it's great that it's not just like 
Kristen Milioti's character is like, I'm never coming back. She's like, I'm going to go figure this shit out so I don't have to deal with you anymore, but I'm still yeah. going to like bring you along with me. So it's not like a petty way. You're not like, man, fuck this chick. You're like, oh, this makes sense. And it's awesome that she teaches herself and figures it out. No. <laughs> right. Um, also, really funny at the ending when they're laying in the pool and, and like, well, what should we do now? He's like, oh, I, should go, I should go get my dog. Like you have a dog and never it never came up. Like I just thought that was like a really funny like yeah. way to end it and just kind of like yep. comment on relationships. So a, a lot to love about this movie. Um, definitely gonna rewatch it for sure. It's an easy watch too, like a what hour but forty mm-hmm. something like that. So quick watch. Yeah, this is a, it's an interesting one to me too because you think about Andy Samberg's career as a movie star, uh, pop star, never stop, never stopping. It was really well liked, but that bombed tremendously at the box office mm-hmm. and this is his first you know lead movie like that since and when it, it sells out of sundance and neon buys it and i believe i'm not positive i'm pretty sure neon like immediately marked this for hulu which they have that agreement with and, and i'm curious if andy sandberg might kind of become a king of streaming in a certain sense when it comes to films because there's clearly an appetite for his movies, even if he probably cannot get people to actually show up to the movie theater under normal circumstances. So something to watch. No, absolutely. Um, so I know that you did not um, want, I know that you did not watch, I think you should leave. So you would not know this character, but Connor O'Malley uh, plays one of the friends at the wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't Ian remember. Cocaine. Yeah. Um, He's like he's like the crazy one in like the the room um, when all when they're having the bachelor party the night before, and he is uh, a guy and I think you should leave who's like honk when you're horny and he just follows the guy with the bumper sticker around honking constantly. One of my favorite skits from the whole thing. Um, and if anyone's watched that show, it's one of my favorite of the year. Just a, a really funny like through line. He's also married to AD Bryant from SNL. Um, yeah. and he like his nice. friends with Seth Meyers. Uh, he was like a Vine star, so there's like a lot of like connection to him. Um, cool. Funny people staying together, like it. Absolutely. Any last thoughts on Palm Springs? No, it's uh, like like the old guard. It's one of those movies that seems to have captured a weekend in a unique way and actually a lot more discourse than it probably would have under normal circumstances so i guess that's the positive of quarantine uh you know quarantine content so that's cool and so you know it's a good movie what do we got for next week dave so on wednesday july 15th peacock launches alas you have another streaming service this year nbc universals I am interested to see what's up with Brave New World, which is the famous sci-fi adaptation launching on the service. It has Alden Ehrenreich in it, who is probably a good time to buy his stock. It might be a little low after Solo underperformed, but he's still a really good actor. So I'm going to at least check that out because, you know, that that's another one of those attempts to replicate Game of Thrones. And obviously it won't be that, but if it's cool, it's good enough for me. Um, other than that there is just a little bit of music coming out we have Ellie Goulding's new album first one in a while we have Kyle's new album I really like some of his early singles we have the Dixie Chicks or should I say the Chicks the Chicks comeback album <laughs> and also Black Bear who uh, white girls like so that's, <laughs> that's a fair amount of stuff 
And it's also, yeah. you know, there's, there's been a fair amount of VOD movies as well. You have The Truth from Corieta. It's been on VOD. Well, I still need to get to that. Um, Greyhound with Tom Hanks came out on Apple TV Plus this past weekend. So we still have Vast of Night, which I watched. We're, oh, okay. We're going to talk about Vast of Night next weekend, yes. uh, which is on Amazon Prime. You can watch that right now. It's, uh, it's supposed to be very good. I haven't yes. seen it yet. We'll definitely talk so, yeah. about that. We're doing good still. The content gods giveth for another <laughs> week, Dave. Uh, follow us at NostalgiaPod on Twitter, SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod. And if you're watching this on YouTube, click that subscribe button or go to YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Support the pod in that way. And uh, don't vote for Kanye, no matter what Chance says. Mm-mm. Don't listen to Chance. We'll see you next week.